Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Nakia T. Fields is a USC graduate and a licensed social worker, and she is not playing. Why, you ask? Because she has made play part of her career. She is a registered play therapist and the founder and chair of the Board for Therapeutic Play Foundation, a nonprofit that seeks to build healthier and more resilient world for under-resourced communities. She is also a trauma-informed restorative yoga teacher and is all about building space for mini yogis too. And talk about drives. There isn't enough room to introduce all of her accomplishments. She is not only a mental health entrepreneur, but she is an author a team leader for the Black Mental Health Task Force and host of the appropriately titled Beyond Expectations podcast, where she talks about everything from parenting to tarot card reading. We can't wait to see where she takes us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. So happy to have you. Hi, J.D. Hi, Bye. (laughs) So let's jump in. I'd like to know who and where you were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, oh my God, what was happening? You know, I was finding out that I was about to be a mom. Yeah, because my son is just turned nine. So it was right in that space where my whole life was about to go from, I like to call myself, I was a single dog mommy. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what that meant in the field of social work is I had, you know, great jobs. I was out there. I think I worked for school districts and Department of Children and Family Services. So I was really growing in my career, building my network. I still had a lot of girlfriends in my life because that's where I was. And most of my money that I spent was on travel and having fun Mm -hmm. and going to brunches or getting my dog groomed and taking care of him. So I remember there being a simpler way of life at that point of time, but it felt like what it was. And then... You know, what else was happening 10 years ago? I was just becoming me. You know, that was, I think I had just, you know, I was entering 30s. And that's when you start to, in my experience, you start to think about the world a little bit differently as opposed to, you know, this is exciting and who I'm going to be. It's more so this is exciting and who I am and who I'm becoming as the world changes. Wow. Okay. That gives us a nice framework. Thank you so much. Of course. So how did you decide what to focus on in your career? And I say that because I just sort of fell into mine. And so I always wonder, first of all, LCSW, let's just start there. Sorry. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then secondly, how did you develop your focus? Because I just sort of fell into mine. I don't recall it being too conscious. So I'm curious about yours. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, we are all mental health professionals in the room and licensed at that. So for the most part in our career, we're not educated on the business part of what to do in mental health. You know, they kind of train us to do clinical interventions or, you know, they call it micro macro. And then you, you know, go out and you're like, well, how do I put this into practice? Because I'm not sure what to do. So I feel sometimes we're taught to get jobs and we sort of land in our focus because of the experience we get in those jobs we take post-graduation. And then as we gain our clinical experience and hours and we get the freedom of actually being licensed, we start to think about what kind of contracts we're now eligible for, what kind of business we're now eligible to become engaged in, but only if we've been exposed to somebody who knows that language to talk about. And if you don't get exposed to other licensed persons who are engaging the business of mental health, then you don't know it's an option. So you kind of fall into the work that you know, because that's the job you took after graduation, or that's the network you created. And those were the opportunities that were made for you. For me, I was very lucky because I have never been somebody who can stay at the same job for a very long time. I need to be stimulated by learning things. I was noticing a pattern in myself that I would want to leave or even move every two years. And I know, you know, we're all mental health professionals in the room. What is that about Um, (laughs) that need? Right. But that's how it showed up for me. And I decided to take care of myself in that I learned all these different skill sets because I didn't like staying in one space. And I built a huge network because I didn't stay in one space. So I knew people here. I knew people there. I also didn't leave people hanging. I left professionally, notice, having done good work so that it wasn't just me bouncing around unintentionally. It was me creating long-term friendships and relationships with partners, later on business partners, as I went. So I've landed in this world of being able to work in an industry that I'm very interested in mental health. I love working with clients, but I love also building programs and building businesses. So I kind of center the line of being able to do clinical work uh, in the line of what I practice. I'm a mindfulness person. I'm a yogi. I do art myself personally. So I get to practice and help other people learn those types of things through the programs I build. And through, I do have a small case of clients sometimes because they won't let me let them go. But <laughs> beyond that, I am truly free to kind of invite workforce development in our field, opportunities for more of us to know how free we truly can be with the type of clients we can work with, the type of programs we can work within, that it doesn't have to be the job you started with. It could be whatever stimulates your mind. You can go create it, especially with a license. You know, you said a couple of things that uh, have me thinking. And one in particular is that, you know, I teach psychology students at a graduate school, Antioch, and I noticed how much more they are geared towards private practice than I was in my clinical social work training. You know, it's all about frontline, get out there and make a difference. I was convinced I was going to change the world once I graduated, even though I was an older student. So it's an interesting concept that you speak of in terms of, you know, expanding the lens to see all of the possibilities, because I think we're geared towards programs, frontline, and don't think about the business aspect of things. So that's very interesting. I like how you figured that out. I mean, how did you figure that out? Like what is that in your background, your family? I would have never considered that in my life. (laughs) 
No, it was opportunity. Honestly, you know, it's everything is in who you know. So, you know, I was working at DCFS and people knew that I was commuting to USC. I'm a Trojan, go Trojans. And people knew. So I did my placement in the county of Riverside because that's where I grew up. I'm from the IE. IE. And yeah, <laughs> and if you know, you know. I finished um, up. I finished up in the IE. <laughs> okay, so you do know. Yeah. Uh, so having my whole family in the IE, and then I was going to grad school in LA, and you know, my I was a first generation college student, and my mom thought I was crazy going to LA because she doesn't drive the freeway. So I was very much. It was a wild experience to end up in LA and have my education there, and so I had some family emergencies, my little cousin passed away and I decided to be near family for my field placement as opposed to going all the way to LA for it. So I could stay living near my family in the home. But what that brought on was an opportunity for all the Riverside County social workers to know that I was commuting to LA for school and asked me to do their visitation for their clients for the month as a part of my internship, right? So I'm doing favors for people who they don't have to drive to LA for half their caseload and I'm handling for them, doing their notes for them, building these relationships, right? And getting to be in the adoptions unit as a still in your program intern is kind of a big deal in that particular department because usually it's preserved for the more experienced social workers because it's considered more of a cush job to do adoptions versus emergency response, which is going right in the room when there's Mm -hmm. the abuse and removing the children. That's a little bit difficult for us in this profession, you know, and it is considered to be an easier one to work in adoption. So long story short, the fact that I made those relationships and they knew how I wrote and how dependable I was when there were opportunities for contracts, they said, hey, are you considered a business? <laughs> are you willing to do this? And I was like, well, I'll create a business. And that was how actually my first business started, that people wanted to give me an opportunity, but it wasn't available to me as a W-2 employee because of the way the county worked. Right. So they kind of nurtured me. I went and read books at the library. I asked my professors, like, how do you write a contract? What's a proposal? Like, I wow. was just out there figuring it out because I wanted to learn how to build this home visitation business. That's what it was. They wanted me to be a consultant. And so I figured it out. And then from there, once you have relationships with people and people trust that you have an ability to do a service, the next thing is to be a salesperson and believe in yourself enough to say, listen, I want to work with children and I want to do yoga with them. And this is the proposal I say, and this is how much I want you to pay me for it. And then have the confidence enough to say, this is what you need. Of course, you have to have data behind it and and intent behind it, but it's possible to build whatever you need if it exists as a problem. That's amazing. That's amazing. So talk about yoga and how you figured out the best way to integrate that into your therapeutic practice. How did that connection happen? Well, it really happened after I had my baby. So I had some problems with, I had to go on bed rest for the last three months of my pregnancy. And that was difficult for me because at that time, my business was a sole proprietor, meaning that I was the only person doing the labor of it and bringing the income in. And so to suddenly go on bed rest without the opportunity to plan for a full three months of income and all that, and also what else was gonna happen? Can you imagine what was happening for me? I'm also, I'm naturally an anxious personality. I'm high energy. So it's always coming out of me, this 
emotional passion. Like my whole life, this is kind of what's been going on, <laughs> what's been going down. And it really came to a head for me chemically because not only was I in complete fear about how I was going to take care of myself, I wasn't actually in a, the healthiest of relationships with my partner. And then there ended up being a custody battle after I gave birth for a very long time. It lasted about four years, I would say. Mm-hmm. We are now very happily and healthily in a great co-parenting relationship. And my baby is very happy and we have moved through. We do everything together as a family. So I'm very happy we got there. However, that particular period of transition from being pregnant being in a relationship that didn't feel healthy and happy for me as a mother, being a licensed clinical social worker who no longer had the ability to work on her feet and do her work or bring income in, really created this anxiety in me that became postpartum anxiety. And I truly had to really deeply go inside self and understand that I needed to become the best person that I can be to cope with this in order to be a mother to this child and also to keep this child in my life. Mm. And that required yoga and breath work and sound baths. And I remember I was already an avid runner. Physical fitness is something that I've always utilized as a way to cope and a way to stay productive and able in my own life because you have to intake good food and you have to get good sleep and you also have to move your body to achieve, you know, your best self. And that includes in business. How can you be a good business leader? How can you make good decisions if you're not, you know, engaging in wellness? Uh, So the fact that I was able to recover and still eat and keep my child and go through a custody battle on all the costs of that required me to have a meditative practice to be able to sometimes pause and address that you are in a very painful situation right now. And you have to make decisions that may cause you harm or they may stress you out. Um, Or you'll have to have conversations with other people that might stress you out. But you got this because you can always pause and breathe. And that's what yoga did for me. And as I work through and survived it and thrived despite it, I wanted to share that with other people. I just really wanted to share like the difference it makes when you have a mindful practice and you can regulate your thoughts. You can regulate yourself when you're in a stressful crisis situation because you already practiced it before you were in crisis. And that's truly the work of dealing with anxiety. And, you know, now I do it through art and play and music and dance events. I do community outreach events with the nonprofit I run with the intention of exposing more and more people to the idea that you can do art together and engage together in community. And that's healing as well as talk therapy is. You know, a lot of people use mindfulness now. If you go on TikTok, you can learn all about it. But, but the reality is, is that I haven't heard many people integrate it as well as you just did. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and explaining your journey. I think that was really beneficial for people to hear. Thank you. Thank you. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the Black Mental Health Task Force. Talk to us about, just explain it basically. And how did you get involved and what does it consist of? Yeah, you know, that's been the most exciting part of the past couple of years for me to be able to 
realize that underneath everything, you know, social work, LCSW, you know, you and my family, although LMFTs are great and everything, you know, you guys are a bit different. You're a bit different than us, you know, like your whole perspective, uh, from what I understand, because, you know, I did not go to a program for MFT, is that the difference is social work is kind of like systemic and family systems are the approach we come from. And outreach is also a big part of that. Like, how do we support with resources and, and advocacy in addition to to helping the client understand and notice their own patterns. And I think that this past couple of years has really allowed me as a mental health professional and a mom and someone who had to advocate for herself, like that last story I told you about, that was all advocacy for me. And also me fighting for myself to learn how to regulate myself so that I could be more powerful because I had to, right? So A part of me going through that experience and being a mother and then also as a business owner, getting to be in rooms that most clinicians don't get to be in rooms. Like I got to be in administrative meetings for school districts, policy rooms for laws, legislative visits, you know, rooms where people were deciding whether or not they're going to remove children, rooms where they were deciding on how they were going to train the providers to remove children and really seeing the inequities that exist in the decision-making process at a very higher level than we even get to see as social workers. And it really turned me on, like, especially when the pandemic hit and schools closed down, preschools, childcare centers closed down. People still had to work, especially essential workers. People were dying because they were sleeping on the streets and freezing. Like there was just so much news coming at us about the black community suffering. So think about my story. I'm this mother who just had to fight to keep this kid. And now I'm looking at the world and the world is scary as hell for my little black boy. You know, and all I could think was I have a PPS, so I also consult with a lot of schools. The disparity, the school to prison pipeline is a real thing. And to be witness to it and to be in a, a lot of IEPs and be the school, like I had contracts where we, they hired me to provide the mental health staff for schools that needed IEP based services for mental health. So I was in all the school districts watching the disparity for black children in particular. So I decided to do something about it. There was a DMH meeting. Somebody invited me to it. They heard me speaking at a school district meeting about this topic. I was like, listen, somebody has to do something. And they said, we invite you to come to this Department of Mental Health stakeholder group that's to inform Department of Mental Health how to address Black wellness from the department because the state demands they have this meeting and listen to the public. I said, I'll go. And I spoke. And then somehow I ended up becoming one of the co-chairs and leading it for a couple of years. And while I was under leadership of me, I asked for a motion that we needed an action force, a task force that would actually do the outreach to the black community and the policy advocacy and all the things that we need. And we need somebody to do that. And hey, if it's not going to be you, DMH, because you have all this red tape because you're a huge department, can we as the leaders in the black mental health community form a task force? Motion was passed. It was founded in June of 2020. We have gotten two bids 
from Department of Mental Health to do outreach directly to the Black community. We had the Empowering Black Families Conversation Series. We are finalizing that with an event next month, a community awards gala where we're giving scholarships and awards to community members who advocate for Black wellness. We vote for who are the winners at that DMH meeting. We do this Black elderly outreach. We got a bid from Department of Mental Health. We're partnering with Department of Public Health on maternal health outreach directly to mothers and babies who are experiencing postpartum depression and anxiety. And as you can see, every topic that we're fighting for are things that I fought for and I needed when I was going through that time. So that's why I formed my nonprofit. Uh, So I guess my story is truly that when you need help and and you need to gain power, you have the ability to build it for yourself. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. And Lord knows I've worked for the Department of Mental Health. I was an outreach therapist. I've worked in the public schools in California. I know everything you're talking about. And it's, you know, I've worked with DCFS. It's painful. I mean, the inequity is real. So the fact that you're doing something about it, right on. Lord knows it needs all the help it can get. So I think it's amazing. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I I mean that sincerely. I was on the front line for many years in California, in Los Angeles in particular. So I saw it. I grieved it. It was very overwhelming, the inequity. So I mean that sincerely. Yeah, Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And, you know, a part of this work is I'm making a documentary. So all this outreach I've been telling you about, I've been filming it. And I just got back from Ghana, where I work with a nonprofit there uh, called Learn, Grow, Lead and the Children Helpers Farm. They have an orphanage and a sustainable farm. They grow the farm to feed them and help find transportation to get the kids to school. So we are trying to connect our ancestry and our culture and knowing about our history with mindset of Black Americans here. So that's why the documentary for me is such a passion project because sometimes talking to people and giving them a lecture or workshop on history or intergenerational trauma and how toxic stress impacts our bodies and our wellness and our future, right? Sometimes telling people that is different than showing them. So the documentary is gonna be 11 part series. We have interviewed so many experts. We were here, we were filming during the racial uprising. We caught a lot of that craziness that was going on. So when it comes out, we're hoping February, 2023, that maybe we could visit again and and show you the trailer or something. Awesome. Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. You know, you just hit on something I wanna go into a little deeper, which is, you know, it appears there's a collective focus removing the stigma from mental health and understanding and finding wellness in the Black community, as well as the rest of the global majority. How do you think we should continue to expand on this energy? I mean, you're doing a lot as it is, but how do we continue to grow this effort so that it becomes international, if you will? Right, as it should be, because, you know, not to say that Well, I will say it, you know, Black people are on fire. You know, I think that, you know, other ethnic groups or minorities, people in poverty in general, without enough resources are suffering. But I think there's something particular to the Black experience that's happening globally that is who knows why, you know, there is something that occurred many, many years before any of us were here that integrated this type of behavior within humans. But we still have to live with it at this point and see that the health data is showing that Black people are dying more often than any other group, that our children are at risk for so many more things than other children. And when you think about that, that means there's a mental health component because mindset is mental health. And 
a lot of people say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you have the ability or positivity, you know, like a lot of people say that. Yeah, sure. All that stuff does work if you have the foundation and the groundwork and ability already established. You already got a home. You already got food yeah. regularly. You know, nobody yeah. beating you up or sexually abusing you every day. Then, yeah, you have a foot above everybody else like you know so i think that stuff isn't taken into account and then when you think about generations uh not being able to have access to wealth uh wealth being destroyed intentionally because it was built all this historical stuff that like lies at our door is our trauma and we have to see it and address it I think the racial uprising and all the attention on black lives mattering within the past couple of years has made like the black mindset, black wellness, black health, like people are out here, people saying it's our time and using the slogans, I can't breathe and George Floyd and all that mm -hmm. as a motivation for the world to wake up and see what's happening. And I think we as a people collectively, not just black people have to continue to put our foot on the neck of that. Like, oh, it's not just a buzzword right now. It's not just something you cared about last year and now we're on to this topic. No, this has been a long time coming and it's gonna take a lot of intentional work and education and awareness building for everybody as a collective to recover from this. And it's gonna take a really long time. It took a really long time to get here. But I think every one step at a time with everybody intentionally choosing health and wellness and rest. You know, we as a community have to let black people rest <laughs> like sometimes that means like let them rest enough so that they can be their most powerful selves. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, this idea that you said minorities, and I, I want to challenge that a little bit because we are no longer the minority. We are the global, global majority. majority. Yeah. And that is what is more threatening to the powers that be right now is that, you know, when I'm not even going to say if when this goes international, everything changes, it all shifts. So that's why there's so much pressure right now on silencing and suppressing in a way that hasn't happened in the past. Like it's more intellectually geared now. This whole CRT, you know, the whole fight against critical race theory, you know, it's become really intellectual trying to attack the things that they know will educate and expand this movement because it is a movement. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. I appreciate you just sort of putting that on a timeline and the encouragement. It's so necessary. Yeah. You know, Social justice and mental health advocacy, it's exhausting. I mean, it is high burnout. How, would, how do you stay grounded and how do you fight that burnout? What, what do you do? I know you do the yoga, but is there anything else? Mindfulness, I think it's a great integration, but is there anything else that you subscribe to that really helps you sort of stay grounded in this journey of yours? Yeah, you know, I take breaks when I need them. I'm a big proponent of self-care. Uh, actually, I wanted to share that I have a social media presence as the Feel Well Coach. And a lot of times what I even started that presence for was a lot of my clients, you know, as you know, as mental health providers yourself, clients kind of don't want to let you go sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started just to be able to give tips and reminders on some strategies to cope. So I, a lot of times, attend like sound baths, retreats, a lot of massages, a lot of like acupuncture, cupping, anything that feels good, scalp massage, getting my yeah. hair done, getting my nails did, feeling good. <laughs> that treatment where they step on you, when they put you do this with your foot, anything, you tell me it feel good. I'm there. You want to test it on me? Yes, let's do it. So I often, somebody told me the other day, your self-care days are intense. And I was like, what do you mean? There was like, you have an itinerary. I have never seen anybody have an itinerary. And I do like 
it'll start with the Korean spa. I'll get a scrub and then I'll get the massage that comes with the scrub. Then I'll take a two hour break in the sauna with the audiobook, And then I'll go to the facial and then you get the acupuncture with the cupping. And they're like, Nakia, like, was that one day? I was like, that was one day. And then I left at three in the morning because some of the Korean spas are 24 oh, yeah. hours. Yes. Yeah, so I am intense with it. Like, I am not playing. <laughs> you're reminding me. You know, I appreciate this because you're reminding me of what I used to do to thrive. And I haven't done any of that. And you've just reminded me that I have to get back into all of it because yeah. that is literally how I thrive through all the work that I've done. So right on oh, for that. You need it. And then also travel. You know, oh, yeah, I, I love travel. There's something about getting into a new environment, new people for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It's great. No, I agree completely. I absolutely believe that, that the kids I'm working at a high school temporarily and the kids joke and call me homeless because I don't, <laughs> I keep it moving. <laughs> I think it's so hilarious. So wait, have you done that? Cupping never really did it for me. Yeah. I love acupuncture, but cupping, I never really figured that out, but have you done the freezing thing? The cold, I don't even know what it's called. What's it called? Hydro. Yeah. Something you go into the ice cold tank cryotherapy there it is you have probably not because i stay freezing like i'm Ew. i'm somebody who's always cold so that don't sound attractive that actually <laughs> sounds like it might hurt a little bit so i'm right. like that probably is not engaged in the stuff yeah, pass on that one pass on that <laughs> but i'd be down to try if somebody said hey nikki i saw you on jd fuller's podcast i want you to try this i'll try it but unless that happens i'm probably yeah. not gonna do it <laughs> i didn't you know it's supposed to be good for swelling and for pain and after workout so I've considered it, but I'm like you, I'm cold all the time. So I, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I know my fingertips be cold. I'm like, man, yeah. like, I don't know about yes. being in a little tank. No option for escape. That sounds anxiety inducing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, I want to know if there's anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about the work you're doing, because I think it's really important. And I know we couldn't tap on all the projects, but is there anything else that you'd like to add to it? You know, I just would like to offer up us as a resource. You know, I think that I've heard that many people are having a hard time finding providers to support them. And especially during a pandemic, you know, sometimes it's not because you feel like you're in a crisis that you need to outreach to help. You know, it could be just that you need somebody to talk to that isn't somebody you've been trapped in a house with for two years. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, that's real the reality thought. of it. So we are here at therapeuticplayfoundation.org, or you can go to blackmentalhealthtaskforce.net if you are looking specifically for resource providers who are of color or who intentionally serve people of color. Um, and that doesn't mean just black people. And it also doesn't mean that it's just mental health services. There are all types of resources there, including housing that people might want to reach out to if they want those resources. And then with Therapeutic Play Foundation, we do have a primary focus on family wellness and health through play and art. So if you have children who are suffering, if you know that your school district maybe has an issue with, you know, servicing the children, like what are they gonna do with the recovery of these children after they return to school post this pandemic? Maybe they're back and everybody's out of sorts. That's exactly what we do as Therapeutic Play Foundation is consult with these schools and these universities. And also when we're building up the workforce of social work and mental health professionals, preparing them to work with communities of color and maternal mental health because there's not enough specialists in that as well. So that's my pitch. Check us out. You know what? You know, you said it doesn't just mean, you know, 
providers who are from the global majority. And so immediately I start to wonder, are they trained in the cross-cultural concept of therapy? Because a lot of people say they can do it, but they can't. And I worry about spaces that are not protected because people think they can, but really can't. So can you say something about how you know people are really capable of doing this cross-cultural work that you may make a referral? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I would just say this, right? Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> like the thing is, I make no promises okay. for other people's licensure. Mm. How about that? Yeah. You know, unless I'm clinically supervising them, I can make no guarantees. But what I can say is that people in the Black Mental Health Task Force, that was a force that we're all volunteers. We're a coalition, not an organization. Yes, my organization, Therapeutic Play Foundation, is the backbone organization, but we have 10 organizations that are signed on to be in coalition with us. We have uh, 30 partners who were there for the formation of the task force and have supported in various ways. That's why we were able to grow so much and do so much outreach to our community and even build the website. People donated the money to build the website. So to say that, that nobody is benefiting from that list of people is like the best backing yeah. I could give you for where that list came from. The people who put their resource on that list created a little two to three minute video explaining their services, introducing you them, introducing you to people who were black led or staff that they could identify with because they presented as looking like me and you. So I think that's the intention. So hopefully that helps. But Everybody's suffering right now. There's not enough billable sources to be able for us to run large enough programs to be able to service low-income clients. There's restrictions on getting a Medi-Cal number. That seems completely unfair. I'm doing some policy advocacy around. There's a lot of barriers to us getting quality care, and it's not our fault as a provider. I no, I agree. I agree. I feel, I feel a lot of guilt around the fact that I can't do more. No, I hear you. You know, it's, it's a real challenge in the community. And I, I again, just want to appreciate the work that you're doing. So talk about donating. How can people reach out to donate money, consider volunteer opportunities, various organizations or projects? What, what can they do? How can they do that? Yeah, there's a donation page, both on Therapeutic Play Foundation's webpage and Black Mental Health Task Force. We are always fundraising to continue programs. You know, because we are a nonprofit, we do have the opportunity to apply for grants. And we have. That's why we're even able to have the staff that we have, the wonderful team that we have. And then I'm very proactive in, you know, mental health entrepreneur here. So a big part of entrepreneurship is being able to speak and write on paper what your idea is and then sell it to somebody and give it a price. So I think that as long as I have that skill set and I'm running this organization, we will always find funding because I will not let it go under. But I am always looking and recruiting board members who would like to also further this because Therapeutic Play Foundation is a nonprofit, which means it's publicly owned. You know, so if anybody else has a passion for some of the things we've talked about, you're like, I want to get on board with that. I want to help with this. Please do come through because, you know, help is always necessary in a mission such as this. It's huge. It's, it's huge. huge to tackle yeah. black mental health. Cause I gotta, yeah. I gotta tackle systems and I gotta tackle individual mindsets within our own community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah well, we've been taught, mm-hmm. we've been taught by the oppressor. Well, so the internalized oppression and the self-hatred, you know, it's really a, a big job in and of itself, let alone the external systems that oppress. So 
I feel you on that. You know, I'm so glad that you're doing what you do. I'm so thrilled that you have the energy to do what you yeah. do and that it's your passion. I'm just so grateful. Ultimately, how do you want to change the narrative? What's your byline for that? I say, let's change the narrative to be, I am powerful. Yo, I like that. I like right? that. Like no matter what ethnic group we are, no matter what our situation or environment is or who's around us, I am powerful enough to notice I don't like this and I'm going to start making little action steps to do something different or impact change. And that's our responsibility. So I am powerful. I can do this. I have options. I am not trapped in whatever this is that I am in. It's a hard one to hang on to and it's important to remind each other and to role model that. So we're going to end right there. And thank you so much for your time. Really, you have to promise to come back and talk more. I mean, we could have gone on and on about all the things that you're doing even more in depth, but this is a nice beginning. So please come back, hang out with us and tell us more of what you're doing. So I'm sure by then you'll have twice as many things to discuss. <laughs> Thanks for Maybe. taking the time with you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. It was such Bye-bye. a pleasure. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with